Good morning, everyone. If you haven't caught on, the theme in many of the songs that we've sung thus far is the love of God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that tells us what to do in light of God's love that he has extended to us. So I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles at this time to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking in just a moment at verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, in a sermon that I've titled, Walk in Love. Walk in Love. Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. Walk in Love. Being a, a follower is not usually held in high regard. In this day and age, we're encouraging people not to be followers. We're encouraging people to be leaders. We want people to stand apart. We want people to be different. We discourage people from following the crowd and doing what everyone else is doing. We encourage people to be trailblazers, to, to take the path that is less traveled, We encourage people to think for themselves instead of letting others think for them. We want more originality rather than everyone looking and sounding the same. We don't want everyone being the same. We want people being unique. Some people really embrace this attitude and will take it to the extreme, making sure that they not only look and sound different than everyone else, but that they stick out like sore thumbs. No one can tell them what to do because they're free thinkers and they're going to do what they want to do and they're going to do it when they want to do it. And while that mindset can be good and we shouldn't follow that, uh, what the world tells us to do, there are certain occasions where we're told to be followers. In our passage this morning, which we'll see that following good leadership can be incredibly beneficial, believers are encouraged to be followers of God. And the idea is that we're to follow him in such a way that we're to imitate him. We're to become as Christ-like and God-like as we possibly can. This is more than just asking the question, what would Jesus do when we're encountered with a situation that may be difficult or a, a decision that we're struggling over? This is following after his footsteps, imitating him, living like him, talking like him, looking like God in everything that we do. So to some degree, this does involve standing out like a sore thumb only because the one that we as believers are called to follow is so opposite from everything we see out in the world. In several places, the Bible instructs us to be separate from the world. Not just because the world has nothing eternal to offer us, but because we should be following Christ. Listen to what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 through 18. The Bible says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." 
So there, God is, is very clearly telling us, as believers, we need to be separate. We need to be separate from the rest of the world. We need to be coming out from among them, the Bible says. We have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, and it should show. There should be a difference about us as believers to the rest of the world who are non-believers. We should stand so clearly apart. 2 Peter 2, 9 through 12 tells us the same thing. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained a mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversations honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. God has called us out of this world. We're living in this world, but he has called us out of this world. We are to be to him a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, he says, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We should be weird, in other words. We should be weirdos to the rest of the world. Any of you ever been called a weirdo before? That's a good thing if you're being called a weirdo for the right reasons. Some of you have been called weirdos and you're just weird. <laughs> but some of you have been called weirdos because you're standing for Christ in a world that isn't. You're sticking out like a sore thumb and there is something so peculiar about you to the rest of the world that is unbelieving that they just think you are so strange because you're following after God and you're doing what the Bible has told you to do. Those are the good weirdos we should be. This, this is what God has called us. Our nature as believers should be so peculiar to the world. God has called us out of darkness, he says, when he saved us. And our lives in him should show forth that reality, that truth. We should be different because we are different. We're completely different than anyone that is unsaved. Unlike the world which is living in darkness, believers are living in the marvelous light of Christ. So let your life demonstrate that reality. Let your lives show forth the praises of Christ who has brought to us his salvation. Let your lives be a shining example of the blessed hope you now have because by his grace, Jesus has eternally saved you and promised you an eternal home in heaven. Live like you're saved. Live like you're a child of God. Live every day with joy because your salvation is real in Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus. Follow him and walk in love. This doesn't mean that you're going to be happy all the time, but you can be joyful in all circumstances. Some people think that the Christian life is about being happy all the time. I'd like to meet the person who's happy all the time. I don't think that person never exists who can be happy all the time you can be joyful all the time but joyfulness and happiness are polar opposites happiness is contingent upon your present circumstances which are not always going to be pleasant because in, in one moment things can be completely pleasant and in the next moment things can be completely unpleasant and you're not going to be happy all the time you can be joyful all the time because of your of your salvation 
And even when things are going horribly bad, you can still look to God who's still on his throne. You can still look to him and the salvation that he has given you, which has never been revoked. And you know you're eternally safe. You're eternally secure. You're eternally kept by the power of God, no matter what you're going to deal with here on earth. And no matter how depressing things get in your life, you can always have that joy knowing that God is always in control of your life. And praise the Lord for that. But there are going to be moments when that happiness that you have is going to fade. Things are going to happen in your life that are going to cause you to be unhappy. The check engine light in your car is going to come on and you're not going to be thinking, well, in this moment, I am happy. <laughs> You'll stub your toe. And in that moment, you're not going to think, I am happy. You'll have a financial crisis. And in that moment, you'll not be thinking, I'm happy. All sorts of scenarios are going to happen in your life that are going to take the happiness that you had prior to that when everything was pleasant and is going to cause you to be unhappy. Can you still have joy in those circumstances? Absolutely. Do you ever stop being a child of God once you've been saved by his grace? Do me a favor, look to the person next to you and say no. Some of you need to say that with more passion and gusto. I don't think you've convinced the person next to you. Thank you. You never stop being a child of God, no matter how horrible the circumstances are. If you're saved, you're saved forever. God doesn't let anyone who he saved slip through the cracks just because things become unpleasant or because circumstances become unfavorable or because you're unhappy one day and you were happy the day prior. Happiness is a roller coaster ride that is going to be up and down and sometimes more downs than ups. But joy is consistent because it is always contingent upon your eternal salvation. And that never wavers. You don't go one day being saved and the next day you're not and then you go back to being saved the following day. You're eternally saved so that joy is eternal and can be constant every single waking moment of your life. In all of life's circumstances, you can have joy, whether good, whether pleasant, whether unpleasant or not. As a child of God, you always have the blessed hope of your eternal salvation. And not even the worst circumstance here on earth can ever change that. Now, with that in mind, we should strive to follow God in all things. So let's go ahead and, and look at what our passage here talks about. Notice what it says in the first seven verses here in Ephesians chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks, for this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Now it should go without saying that every believer, every true Christian should be following God. But as we see in our passage this morning, it needs to be mentioned, doesn't it? We don't get saved and then immediately know that we're to follow God or even know what following God even looks like. 
But we need to be reminded of this over and over. And what we see in this passage is that there are positive truths about godly love, but there's also this comparison that we see about the negative truths about Satan's counterfeit love. So I want you to notice, first of all, the plea, the plea that is given to every believer. Look at verses 1 and 2 once more, just the first part of verse 2. It says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love. This is the plea. The Apostle Paul is writing to these believers in Ephesus, and he is, he is pleading with them to do this. Everything else that he's mentioned thus far, the fact that they are eternally saved and they can have eternal joy no matter the circumstances of their life, he's saying, with this in mind, walk in love. Be followers of God. This plea is made to believers to have the same love that Christ has demonstrated to them to one another. Our daily lives should demonstrate that same love that Christ has for us. In Romans chapter 13 and verses 8 through 10, the Bible speaks of what this love looks like. Romans 13 verses 8 through 10, the Bible says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The more we grow in love, the more we see the need to be loving. And since biblical love is so different from the flesh, we're constantly needing reminders and encouragements to love one another. All of this starts, though, by first following Christ. Because we cannot properly learn how to love without first learning what example we have from Christ, to follow his example. And verse 1 gives us a clue of what the love of Christ looks like. Again, it says, "...be ye therefore followers of God as dear children." That word, therefore, it ties this verse with the previous thought. And just look back to the last verse of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The idea we get from this verse is that God is infinitely kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving, all of which are qualities that we as believers need to be imitating. Our lives should be a mirror image of Christ's life that he lived here on earth. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that Christ is the mirror image of his heavenly Father. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is the mirror image of the Father. We, as believers, ought to be mirror images of Christ. On numerous occasions throughout his public ministry, Jesus declared to be equal to the Father. In fact, in John chapter 14 and verse number 9, where Jesus is talking specifically with the disciples in the upper room, he tells Philip that when they see him, they actually see the Father. Notice what it says, John 14, verse 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. 
Jesus is the express image of God the Father. He works just as the Father works. He speaks just as the Father speaks. When we see him, we see God the Father. And the pattern that Jesus has set is the pattern that every single believer needs to follow. Our speech, our conduct, our lives, all of us need to demonstrate godliness, need to demonstrate Christ's likeness. We should be following God in such a way that when other people see us, they see God in us. It shouldn't just be that something is different about us. It should be clear as day that we're a child of God because we look so much like our Heavenly Father. We talk like Him. We act like Him. We walk like Him. Everything we do, without even opening our mouths, points to the fact that we're a child of God. We shouldn't just bear His name. We should bear His likeness. Everything we do should reflect him because everything we do reflects on him and our desire should be to uphold his name to the absolute highest standard when god redeems us it is the holy spirit who starts this work of sanctification within every single believer and that process is conforming us more into the image of jesus christ and that starts with us imitating christ's characteristics believers are instructed in first peter chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16 It says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So don't go back to the old way of life thinking that that's how you need to live. He says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. There's a new desire, a new pattern for our lives once we're saved. And that is not to go back to the old lifestyle, but to follow God and imitate the person of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest characteristics of God is his love. The reason we're able to imitate the love of God is because of what we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 5. It says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. We're able to demonstrate love to others because love has first been demonstrated to us. The love of God, it says, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. We're responsible for following God and for demonstrating that love that he has shown to us, to everyone around us. Some people make a living imitating others. Actors, comedians, and the like get paid sometimes millions of dollars to imitate other people. Actors earn the opportunity to play a certain role based on how well they perform, how, how well they can imitate whoever it is that they're imitating, and how well they can convince other people, the audience, of this performance. And based on how well they can do this, they will earn a job. How do you think they do that, though? There's a lot of effort that is put into each role and each performance. They spend hours studying the tendencies, studying the mannerisms, studying the the facial expressions and all-around behavior of the person that they're called on to impersonate. They have to put put on a performance that causes the viewers to be convinced that they're actually watching the real person. Every detail must be spot on. Every hand gesture needs to be perfectly timed. Every facial expression needs to be precise. All of it needs to be a mirror image of the real person that they're portraying to be. 
Many will go through great lengths, such as even losing weight or gaining weight, building muscle, changing their hairstyle, cutting their hair off. They'll, they'll go through really anything necessary physically to resemble the person that they're called on to imitate. Now, some of these changes require months, sometimes years of preparation, all for maybe a two-hour movie. If actors will put that much time and that much effort for a production that will be viewed by an audience for only about two hours, what should we as believers be doing considering we're preparing for eternity? We're certainly not following God to impress or to convince others. We're preparing ourselves for eternity. It's not a role that we're playing, rather a new nature that we're becoming. In 1 John 3, verse 2, the Bible states, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we, what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're today being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ if we're saved. And therefore, wouldn't it make sense that we prepare for what that will look like when we're received into heaven? We should be familiarizing ourselves as much as possible with the one that we're called to follow, Jesus Christ. We should be in tune with how he thinks, how he reacts, how he would respond, how he would speak, how he cares for people, and how he demonstrates love. Why do you think that children end up resembling their parents? Even if they don't necessarily look like identical to their parents, they often talk the same, walk the same, they'll use the same phrases move their hands the same way when they talk as their parents do. Sometimes they're just as opinionated as their parents. Sometimes they're just as stubborn as their parents. Sometimes they're also just as compassionate, just as generous, and just as loving as their parents as well. This doesn't happen by default, just because they're children of these parents, but because the parents demonstrated all of these qualities and their children learned through their example. Through all the time the children spend with their parents, they pick up their qualities, they pick up these characteristics, and often become miniature versions of their parents. Even when children are convinced that when they grow up, they're going to be different than their parents. They're going to do things differently than how their parents did because their parents don't know what life is like today. It's natural for children to grow up and to think that. But what often ends up happening is that they actually become more like their parents than what they realized and ever thought would ever happen. It's natural for them to do that because that is who they spent the majority of their time around and learning from. When we believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior, God becomes our Heavenly Father and He should be the one that we begin to imitate. Since God is holy, we as believers are called to be holy. Since God is kind, we as believers are called to be kind. Since God is forgiving, we as believers are called to be forgiving. Since God is loving, we're called to be loving. While these qualities may not be natural, they may be supernatural, we have the Holy Spirit's help along the way to get there. 
the more we are yielding ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the more he is providing the power and the ability to mirror our Heavenly Father. The best way we can demonstrate the love of God is through forgiveness, which everyone loves. No? How many of you love giving out forgiveness? No one, right? No one likes giving out forgiveness. We love getting forgiveness because we've done something wrong and we like to know that people have forgiven us for what we've done. But no one really likes giving out forgiveness, right? Because we, we justify it and we say, well, you know, they don't deserve to have forgiveness. They're not even asking to be forgiven. Why should I give them something that they don't deserve or even are asking for? If you knew what they did to me, you wouldn't be telling me I need to forgive them. No one likes forgiveness. But the greatest act of God's love was seen in him giving his only begotten son to die in our place. God offered the world of men undeserved forgiveness. A world that was hopelessly lost now had hope through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Since undeserved forgiveness is the greatest act of God's love, it is also the most convincing proof of our love. Love will always lead us to forgive others, even if they haven't sought out our forgiveness, just as it was when God forgave the world of man. Man was not crying out to God for help from his sin. We were not pleading for God to help us from our wretched condition. We were arrogantly living apart from God, convinced entirely that we didn't even need him. God didn't enter a world of men who were in need of help and were asking for it. When Jesus came to earth, he rescued an undeserved race of men who weren't looking for any redemption. Everything God did for us was completely undeserved. God has been far better to us than what any of us have ever deserved. Therefore, whatever someone else may do to us, regardless of how bad or even unjustified as it was, Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin. When we harbor that bitterness, when we hold on to that frustration, when we have anger and ill will towards a fellow believer, we're not only allowing these feelings to control us, we're profaning Christ's sacrifice for every sin. And we have no right at all to hold anything against any other person, even non-believers. In Matthew 18, the Apostle Peter thought he had found a loophole. He thought it was generous if he could forgive someone seven times. And that would be the end of it. But Jesus quickly shot that down and taught that forgiveness ought always to be, given, to be given regardless of the circumstances. In 1 John 2, verse 12, the Bible states, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. We read in Ephesians 1, verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And then in Colossians 2, 13, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Over and over, we are told that all of our sins are forgiven. Therefore, we have no cause to not offer forgiveness to anyone. Who are we to not forgive someone whom God has already forgiven? 
And that includes yourself. Some people have the hardest time forgiving themselves, even though they're able to forgive everyone else. They feel that what they've done is unforgivable. God has already forgiven you. Why are you holding a higher standard of forgiveness than what God has already established? The same way the depth of God's love is seen through his forgiveness, the depth of our love is shown by how much we forgive as well. The depth of our love is also seen in how much we know we have been forgiven. On one occasion, when Jesus was eating at the house of Simon the Pharisee, a prostitute came and began to anoint the feet of Jesus with her tears and with some very expensive ointment. Simon was outraged at what this woman was doing and that Jesus was allowing her, a sinner, to do this. And Jesus responded to his outrage by telling him a parable. Listen to what Jesus taught in Luke 7, verses 41 to 43. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Jesus was teaching Simon that the woman treated him differently because she had so much to be forgiven from and recognized how much she had been forgiven from. Therefore, her love for Christ was greater because her debt was so great. Simon failed to see the enormity of his sin. And therefore, he had little sense for his own need for forgiveness, which led to him being unforgiving to others and view this woman as beneath him. Unforgiveness is the measure of self-righteousness, just as forgiveness is the measure of love. When we realize just how much God has forgiven us individually, we will be quick to forgive any of those who have wronged us. And as a result, unforgiveness is also a measure of unbelief because the person who doesn't forgive doesn't feel the need for God. That's the plea. The plea is for every believer to follow God, to imitate him, to walk in love. But I want you to notice second, the pattern. Look at the rest of verse number two. It says again, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. The pattern. How many of you are good at drawing? Anyone good at drawing in here? Come on, there's got to be someone good at drawing. Lily, Elijah, you're good at drawing? I've seen your drawing, pal. Put your hand down. Anyone? I'm just kidding. He's good. Anyone else good at drawing? Some of you? Okay, all right. I'm not talking about stick figures here, but something good enough that might look like a tracing. Some of you, okay, a few of you. I was never good at drawing, so I, I resorted to tracing. The carefully I traced, the more my picture looked like a mirror, a copy, a perfect replica of the original. The pattern for Christian living is Christ. Every single believer should be tracing our lives to line up with our Savior. 
But this isn't done on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to help with this process of becoming more like Christ. But it stands with measuring our own lives up to Christ's standard. So just like you would take a piece of paper and put it on top of the real image you're tracing, you line yourself up right next to Christ and hold yourself up against that standard. And then you start the work of tracing. And this is what we're called to do. We need the Holy Spirit's help to start this process of becoming more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3, in verse number 18, the Bible describes this. It says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The picture there is looking in a mirror. We see ourselves and we see all the issues that we have. And the only way we're going to be transformed into the image of Christ is through the Spirit of the Lord helping us along that process. But the specific pattern, we're told, is to imitate the unconditional love of Christ. Look again at what it says there in verse number 2 of Ephesians chapter 5. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. How are we supposed to do that? How are any of us supposed to do what it says Christ did for us there in verse number two? The love that Christ has for us is not some good feeling or some pleasant emotion. This is not based on merit. This isn't based on attractiveness or even the response of one that is being loved. Christ didn't give himself as an offering for us because we deserved it. Romans 5, 8 and 10 tells us that it was quite the opposite. It said, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It goes on in verse number 10 saying, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we should be saved by his life. Christ didn't die for us because we were good or even because one day we would be good. He died for us because he loves us and knew we could never be good on our own. The love that imitates God's love is a love that is motivated in forgiveness and for the sake of giving, not receiving. God's love is unconditional. He got nothing out of this exchange. He got nothing out of this gift. He didn't say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you my son to die in your place, and this is what I expect in return in order to make this exchange full and complete. He got nothing out of it. He wasn't bettered in some capacity by giving us his only begotten son. He didn't gain anything by it that he was lacking. He was perfectly content and perfectly whole and perfectly perfect in every way. He saw us in our need, though, and demonstrated love purely out of a desire to give us what we couldn't give ourselves. So the love that imitates God's love is a love that is motivated in forgiveness. It is not a love that is motivated in trying to get something out from the person we're trying to love. God's love is unconditional. It cannot be earned, neither is it deserved. It is given purely out of his grace that he has shown to us. As believers who are recipients of God's love, we are commanded to love as he loves. Not to do so would be going against our new nature in Christ as well as God's nature. Not showing forgiveness and love to others is a, a willful sin of disobedience, disregarding God's clear command. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. The love of the Christian should extend to everyone just as it did with Christ. God demonstrated love and mercy to his enemies. To his enemies. How can we not do the same? 
The great act of love demonstrated in Christ offering himself for his enemies upon the cross was to God a sweet-smelling savor, the Bible says. As sin was paid for once and for all, that sweet smell of full atonement spread to everyone in the world who would believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ and live for all eternity in his presence. Notice, I want you to notice third, the perversion. The perversion. Look at verses three and four. We've seen the plea, we've seen the pattern, but notice the perversion. Verses three and four. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Everything that God does, Satan seeks to counterfeit. Where God demonstrates true love, Satan produces counterfeit love. In contrast to living godly, unselfish, and being forgiving, is the world's love which is lustful and self-indulgent. The world loves because the object of love is pleasant, is attractive, is enjoyable. It responds in love and it produces desired feelings, at least temporarily, or is likely to repay it in some way. The world's love is always based on how the other person feels and the other person fulfilling their needs and their desires. In short, worldly love is about giving a little with the expectation of receiving a lot. With as selfish and destructive as this type of love is, it shouldn't surprise us that this kind of love leads to immorality and impurity. This love is always conditional and it is always self-centered. It is never concerned with commitment, but it is always concerned with gratification. It is less concerned with giving as it is to getting. And as a result, this type of love only lasts as long as the one loved continues to gratify or until they move on to someone else. The word that it mentions there in verse number three is the word fornication. And fornication very simply refers to all sexual sins. And all sexual sins are against God and against godly love. Fornication is the opposite of self-control, specifically in this area of sex. Uncleanness refers to immoral thoughts and passions and ideas and every other form of sexual corruption. Our modern society's obsession with fornication and uncleanness, unfortunately, has crept into the church because the church has become so weak and so undiscerning about these matters, allowing scripture to be completely twisted or in some cases completely rewritten to accept such perversion. No matter how it's dressed up, fornication and uncleanness will never be anything better than what they are, which is wickedness and eternal offense against a holy God. The list of sins continues to include even non-sexual sins, sins dealing with general obscenity and talk that is degrading, talk that is just outright disgraceful. There's no place for any of these, the Bible says, among the believers. And there's certainly no place for these things in the church. Rather than being known for immorality and foolish speaking, the believer's mouth and life should be known for giving of thanks. Giving of thanks is an expression of unselfishness. The one giving thanks does this because he feels he didn't deserve the favor that was shown him in the first place. Whatever good he receives from God or from other people, he considers undeserved and gracious. If Christians are known for anything, we should be known for expressing toward others and toward God a spirit of unending thankfulness. 
the perversion. But notice fourth, the punishment. The punishment, verses 5 through 7. Notice what it says here. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. The punishment. Now based on how verse 5 begins, we know that this thought has already been established. They've already talked about this. He says, for this ye know. This is a reminder of a truth that others had taught and Paul is reinforcing. The simple truth is that God doesn't tolerate sin. And this perverted love always leads to punishment. God is very clear that no sin has any place in his kingdom and no place in his family. God will not just look the other way. God will not just sweep sin underneath the rug. All of the wickedness described here in verses 3 through 5 are from the same basic Greek words, all pointing to covetousness and idolatry. Those who are characterized by these sins, the Bible says, have no inheritance with God and have no future in God's kingdom. No one whose life pattern is one of habitual fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, and idolatry can be part of God's kingdom because no such person belongs to God. Such habitual practices contradict the life that a believer has in Jesus Christ. The life that is described here in these verses characterized the life of the unsaved. And if this should characterize any of you here this morning, it's time to do some serious self-examination. Because no matter what you claim to be, no matter how much you've been attending this church, no matter how much you've sat under solid biblical teaching where the word of God has gone forth and the gospel message has been so clearly, clearly, uh, clearly evidenced and, and preached, if the evidence suggests otherwise and you are habitually in these sins that are mentioned here, you're in serious trouble, you're in eternal trouble. No matter what kind of relationship you think you might have with Jesus Christ, if you are habitually in these sins, the Bible makes it very crystal clear. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and of God because you're not saved. And if you're finding that out today, praise God you're finding it out today and not when you're facing Jesus Christ as your eternal judge when it's too late. The hope is that if you find out today what you thought was real but wasn't, that you'll throw yourself at the mercy of God and be saved today. That you'll recognize that all of these sins that you thought were hidden, that you thought weren't affecting anyone else, but are habitual practices in your life have actually disqualified you from being a part of God's family and in His, and in his, and in his eternal kingdom. Jesus Christ is the only answer to your problem and it's, salvation is only found through believing in him and him alone. It is not going to come through church attendance. It's not going to come because you read your Bible, because you walked an aisle, because you did anything else other than believing in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And if you're waiting for something or a better opportunity to do it, today is the day of salvation. Come speak to me. Let me show you through the word of God how you can know for sure that you're saved. Don't waste time thinking that the opportunities will present themselves in the future. God hasn't promised that there'll be a future for you. Come to him today. Come seek me out after the service. We can take a moment and just show you through scripture how you can know for sure that you're saved and that you're eternally bound to Jesus Christ and this inheritance that he's offered you. No matter what kind of relationship you have with Christ, God's children are always God's children and they possess his nature. The person who is habitually sinful proves that he does not possess God's nature and thus is not a child of God. In Titus chapter two, 
In verses 11 through 12, the Bible tells us, it says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Everyone who is saved is instructed by the Holy Spirit and through inclination of his new nature to forsake sin and to be seeking after righteousness. The person whose basic life pattern doesn't reflect that orientation cannot claim God as his father or the kingdom of God as his inheritance. God makes it very simple. No matter what your claims are, if your life is dominated by sin, there you are on your way to hell. People will try to deny that. But as Paul says here, he says, let no man deceive you with vain words. People will try to excuse sin. They'll try to label sin as tolerable, even going so far as to suggest that God will not exclude such sinners from his kingdom because God is too loving to do such a thing. These are vain words and outright lies. It is because of these sins and because of these lies that we have what it says here. Again, in verse number five, it says, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. God is a loving God, absolutely, but God will always punish sin. So for someone to tell you that God is too loving to punish sin, it is because of sin that the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. This is what their sin deserves. This is what their sin deserves gets. Those whose nature it is to disobey God's word and to live in sin are referred to here as the children of disobedience, and they will end up being the eternal objects of God's wrath. No matter the time, God's attitude towards sin hasn't changed. All that this perverted love does is attract the wrath of God, which you don't want. Therefore, separate yourselves, the Bible says, be not ye therefore partakers with them. Separate yourselves from the children of disobedience and do as it says there at the beginning of verse number two, walk in love. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Do everything you can to win them to Christ, but don't give even a thought to entertain such a lifestyle and embrace the false sense of worldly love that only leads to destruction and to despair. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you that we're able to come, Lord, under the teaching of your word and, Lord, learn some things that may need to be demonstrated in our lives. Lord, none of us have perfected walking in love. None of us have perfected demonstrating forgiveness. None of us, Lord, have perfected the love that you have shown to us and showing it to others. We all have room to grow. And I pray, Lord, that we're doing what's necessary for us to grow in knowledge of you, but also to grow in a deeper walk with you. Help us, Lord, to walk in love and to be your followers, that wherever we may be, people may see that we are indeed a child of God even before we ever open our mouth and begin to tell them about the wonderful works that you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.